From MIT, this is the Energy Initiative. I'm Francis O'Sullivan. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're joined by two guests from MIT's The Quest, Professor Nick Roy, Director of The Bridge, and Dr. Joshua Joseph, Chief Intelligence Architect. Well, Nick, Josh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you joining us here on the, the podcast today. And, and for me personally, it's going to be quite a different experience. As uh, regular listeners will know, we tend to kind of focus on specific technologies, a specific set of energy expertise. And uh, though I know both of you guys have a lot of expertise in the energy space, I think the work that you guys are doing with the Quest uh, and with the Bridge in particular in the transition of that fundamental work to, to in- industry is broader. And so I think we're going to have a very exciting and kind of slightly different conversation. I'd like to kind of kick things off just by asking both of you to reflect a little bit on the quest, MIT's effort to kind of really understand intelligence. What does that really mean from your own personal perspectives? And what does it mean, perhaps, in a more applied sense to going forward? Sure. So the quest really comes out of the fact that MIT has been a founding member of sort of the AI enterprise from the very beginning. And there's a huge amount of AI research on campus, but over time, it's become a little bit diffuse. And there are some really big questions to be answered out there that if we can bring many faculty together and give them the resources to really dig in and spend a fair amount of time and really work together to answer some of these really big questions, and I think energies and the impact of AI on energy and how AI can be used to understand energy consumption better, I mean, those that's a good example of a really big question that, that we could bring people together and really start making progress on. And so the quest is really designed to do that, is to bring people together, really focus their efforts, and also develop technologies that can be used to democratize AI, really bring AI to bear on non-AI problems and make it a lot easier for researchers at MIT and other places to, to, to work on those. So there's these two pieces. One is the basic research component, and then the other is, that's called the core, mm-hmm. and the other is the bridge, which is really the application of AI. And Josh is our chief intelligence architect trying to work out how to build that those tools. Yeah. For the bridge, one of the things, I guess I'll speak from me personally for a second, I think that'll tie more into the bridge, is that, um, you know, as like sort of an AI researcher, very often, you know, my feeling is with a lot of the research, it feels pretty disconnected from real problems. And I think one of the things that we think a lot about in the bridge is what are really the sorts of AI methods and research and tools that can make some sort of concrete impact on the sort of real world in a real problem and like energy is probably a really awesome example of something where you know we have these tools and it's great that there's research in this but like which tools really matter to energy for example yeah you know a secular theme in in energy today if you were to ask somebody from the sector is like digitization they feel like, oh, well, suddenly we now have access to much higher resolution data, cheaper sensors, so on and so forth. And, you know, we see an embracing of the kind of deployment of this kind of capability in many sectors. But that's almost always where it ends or where it has been ending. Yeah, that data is almost a curse and a blessing, right? Like you have all this data, but then what you do with it and what you end up generally, or what we see a lot of the time is that energy researchers have all this data. They end up having to team with somebody from AI who knows how to set up the models and run the algorithms and produce the answer. And then the energy researcher can then interpret that and, and figure out what to do next. But that's not a very efficient pipeline. And so if we can sort of take that AI researcher out of that loop and make it a lot easier for a non-AI energy person to know what to do with the data and build the kinds of models that uh, Josh, and I'll let you talk about specifically what people might use. 
Yeah, and I think maybe to add a little bit onto that story too, I think one of the things we're really seeing is it can be really hard for non-computer science researchers actually to even get like computer science PIs very interested, you know, because there's a pretty big gap between what AI stuff or AI methods or tools or whatever that would make a difference for a lot of these applications and where the sort of state-of-the-art computer science research is. And so it can make it really hard to make like a CS researcher care a lot about the application because it's like the methods that are used often you you know you don't even need the state of the art stuff you just need someone that can like ingest data you know fit a straightforward model like produce some sort of answer some sort of insights some sort of whatever that then you can make a decision based on but it's hard to like publish in computer science conferences based on that there's a really interesting analog for me in the field of economics actually so if you look at academic economists in the pure economist sense they're really often not interested at all in some questions that in our world of a more applied economic context are fundamental, hugely important, hugely valuable. And I can see exactly the same challenge in the, in the application of AI and machine learning at the kind of frontier to these problems. Yeah, I can give you an example like that. Even from our world, uh, yesterday, I was talking to a few neuroscientists, you know, who don't have any real AI background, but are brilliant neuroscience researchers. And I was like, oh, you know, you're doing, they're doing some sort of labeling by hand, like by grad student. Right. They're labeling all this data to then publish research on. And it's like, well, have you ever just like reached out to a CS like PI to see if they want it? They're like, no, like how would we, what do we just like send an email to one? Like what's going to happen? Right. And, and, yeah. and there are PIs who actually run the equivalent of office hours because there's such a demand for that kind of expertise. And they're just like, you know, yeah, I'll be available from this time to this time to help anybody who wants. But that, again, is not very efficient. And so imagine that you just those graduate students could just like log on to you know, the, the bridge platform when it when it exists. Right. And then they see sort of like, you know, the example pipelines of like how to do this. And this where you plug your data. And it's, it's like where we were with the web, you know, 20 years ago, is you basically had to be a computer scientist to get a web page. But now you log on to WordPress or Tumblr and you don't have to understand HTML and how the web works to get your own web presence. And that's kind of where we want to get to. So from my perspective, having spoken to a lot of folks in the energy sector, conventional and, you know, renewable energy and so on in the electricity sector and increasingly even in mobility and so on, one thing that stands out is that there is this awareness of a potential or a powerful impact that these kind of techniques could have for their business. But there's struggle with approaching the the space, the discipline, and thinking about how we can bring this discipline in-house in a way that fits and can be kind of culturally integrated and so on. And I think in the work that you guys are doing, particularly with the bridge, obviously this is a fundamental element in kind of being successful. Could you guys, and I mean, I'm interested in both your perspectives, reflect a little bit on kind of what you've seen or your experiences in kind of making that, helping helping the users ultimately get comfortable and embrace the technologies? So let's see. There's a bunch of things to your question. Yep. One is we definitely, have, so what we are trying to do is a bridge. We've talked to external partners and has resonated a lot. There's a lot of organizations out there that have essentially the same problem. Maybe they don't have AIPIs, but they have data analysts, a small number of them. And they're the ones that are sort of the bottleneck on all the other sort of units of the company trying to, trying to do this. So there's a real need out there. And then there's a, but then your second part of your question is like, how do people even know what they need and ask the right questions? And I think that's just part of MIT's mission as an educational organization is we just, we don't necessarily need to train people in all the details of PyTorch and TensorFlow or what have you, but understanding what these tools can do and what they're for, et cetera, I think is really important to what we're trying to do. 
Yeah, and I think one way that we just at the bridge have very, like, concretely trying to attack this is this sort of, like, two-pronged or something approach. So one is just what are the sort of, like, standard workflows we've started to call them that you would sort of put together, that you would build, that you would run as an AI researcher in this sort of like well-framed AI problem. You know, maybe you're talking about image segmentation, maybe you're talking about forecasting from tabular data. You know, there are a few sort of pretty standard workflows you'd run through, but I think there's still this gap, like you were saying, between, you know, maybe domain experts or even, you know, more business people and being able to use that. And so the second part of this that's really important here with the bridge is sort of like almost a, you know, consulting is the wrong word, but a sort of like hands-on, you know, AI researchers that are like bridge AI researchers that will show up and sort of like handhold and guide through how to use these. But if we do our job well, we won't even need that anymore. What, I mean, sort of long-term vision, mm-hmm. the, the pie-in-the-sky dream is to create a generation of AI-native students. So, like, yep. you know, the undergrads leave here, you know, already knowing a fair amount about computation. The next thing is we want them to just inhale AI and become what people are calling AI-native uh, so that they understand, you know, just from day one, like, you know, what these things are, what they can be used for. They may not know all the details, but they're very comfortable with them. So in your in your experience to date, right, if we look across kind of the economy, aside from the kind of computer science and tech space itself, though I'm interested in your reflections there too, what sectors of the economy have kind of most embraced the potential that AI and machine learning brings to their business? And, you know, are there those out there sectors that you've seen from your own experience that really feel like they're not quite they're not quite at the party yet? Well, the, the first one is easiest, which is you can look to see which organizations have invested the most in AI, and it's you know it's internet ad companies, yeah. Google and Facebook, and then you know Apple's not strictly speaking an ad company in the same way, but this, the, you know the Silicon Valley companies have really em- embraced that. One of the things that makes it easy for them to embrace is the fact that the risks for them are not really embedded in the AI. I mean, obviously, we've seen Facebook and Amazon have some spectacular. I guess Amazon's failure wasn't so spectacular, but it was interesting in how they deployed AI. The places that are the sectors of the economy that are more dependent on correctness and sort of certification are having the hardest time deploying it. So like healthcare, healthcare. things like that. Yeah. Although healthcare, again, as long as there's a doctor in the loop, I think it's actually okay. And it is being used very, but I was thinking more like, so construction would be one where we haven't seen as much AI. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I think is the construction problem is a little not well aligned with what AI can do right now. And the other is that the cost of getting it wrong is really high in construction. Right. So that's really interesting. So Let me give you an example of something I'm familiar with, a major U.S. utility, a wireless company, so to speak. They're really interested in having a much, much higher resolution around the nature and behavior of their customers, right? Because forever in a day, an electricity customer was viewed effectively as having no elasticity at all with respect to demand and so on. And that's the way the business has evolved. And today that's changing. The potential to add elasticity is changing. But we remain in a situation where many of these companies have, you know, millions and millions of customers, all of their usage pattern data and so on, and have never even attempted to explore it. And one of the key reasons is that the regulator, which shapes a lot of the energy business, says, you know, there are questions around privacy, data access concerns, et cetera, et cetera. And that for me feels like a big hurdle. And I'm not sure, you know, I'm curious, in your work, have you come across that? And how are we, how are sectors where there's real potential 
trying to overcome what is kind of, I think, a very valid and important concern that we have to manage. Yeah, I guess I can answer this a little more concretely from two different sectors, maybe, that I've seen a bit more hands-on. And this is even a little bit before I joined the bridge. So one is just with, like, healthcare. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all of this really interesting, like, well, you have models making predictions, and we're pretty, we pretty well understand how we like certify machines to do stuff, or even human technicians in the loop. But what happens is you start sort of automating that technician's job, and um, you know, do you just view the computer that's been automated as just like a, a human and run it through the same process? And you say, you know, to the regulators, like we've sort of done our job, we've certified the machine the same way we'd certify a human, so we're good. I think there are like a bunch of really interesting. I don't know. We can get into questions in that. I think another really interesting industry that I've seen some of this in is in finance and specifically in trading and a lot around alternative data. So, you know, here you have hedge funds that are using everything from like satellites, as people talk a lot about, to like, obviously there's things like news, but there's also stuff like credit card data that's very well understood and known as a thing. And so you have all of this interesting regulation around, well, you know, there's consumer data in there, but should these hedge funds have access to it? How should they use it? How do you use it safely? I think are like a bunch of really interesting questions. And, and these are things that we're thinking about too in the bridge. We don't pretend to have the answers, of course. but it's pretty clear that we need to understand the issues. And as we roll out these tools and we provide data to students and faculty and researchers on campus and, and the world over, we need to make sure we're doing that in a responsible fashion. One of the things that's, again, a curse and a blessing in the U.S. is that we don't have a GDPR. And that obviously gives the U.S. a lot more flexibility in some situations, but also doesn't force us to actually think carefully about these issues. Europe is both further ahead and struggling with a lot of these issues. And I think if we can watch what happens there, then we can learn some interesting lessons without having to go through some of the same pain. So GDPR, just for our audience who may not uh, know that particular abbreviation, is General Data Protection Regulation. Regulation, yeah. yeah. One of the other things that's been really interesting with the bridge is that we also think a lot about sort of ethics and how that intersects right. the tools that we're building, things like that. And I think we've had some really great conversations, too, with the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard and uh, the Media Lab here at MIT has a lot of sort of like joint programs that think a lot about like AI and ethics and like data privacy and usage is like a really interesting component of that that we we try to think really hard about, but it's still like a very immature thing. Yeah, uh, Josh and I have been likening it to how human subject experimental protocols sort of evolved from the 50s to now. If uh, you look at the uh, literature and you look at the bill, the congressional bill that sort of authorizes use of human subjects as a clear articulation of a defining principle, which is informed consent. So long as you have informed consent, you do that properly, then everything else sort of falls automatically from that. What's the defining principle of AI research? I don't think we know yet. My hypothesis or our hypothesis is that it's transparency. As long as you understand what's happening and what the data is being used to support the decision and how the model works, then everything else probably flows from that. But that's a hypothesis and it remains to be seen. Well, I think that's really interesting because, you know, in the energy space, take this utility data, for example, I think a tremendous proportion of the population will be pretty happy with that data being used. If there was a service being delivered, that was kind of a value to them and so on. But you always have a subset that's not comfortable with that. And I think this question then about informed consent and so on becomes, that is a hurdle that's going to be very hard to clear. 
That then leads to the fact that, you know, of course, today in cryptology and cryptography and so on, there's kind of a lot of progress on things like, you know, zero knowledge proofs and so on, which really enable a lot of interesting and new stuff happening. I'm curious of your own reflections on kind of innovative ideas about how to use some of those tools in unlocking more of the potential that these data sets have. So if the question is, what is the potential for innovation? The potential is huge. There's clear need for all kinds of progress, technical and policy progress in lots of areas. You know, somebody said to me the other day that a good principle is also the principle behind Google Maps, which is that you can see your own individual data and you can see the aggregate of everybody else's data, but you can't see the individual of anybody else's data. And right. so that's an interesting principle. Yeah, so, so one of the other interesting sort of things we've seen specifically from a group here on campus is Sandy Pentland has this data trust sort of initiative here. And so what they think a lot about is how do you sort of let different people or different companies in a supply chain sort of like share data together, but in a way where, you know, there might be sort of proprietary insights in Mm -hmm. their specific data, but if you share them sort of behind a wall, um, and I'm, you know, likely butchering the very intense and complicated details of the stuff that they build. But I think those are the sorts of things that people think a lot about with like, how do you share data and how do you do it respectfully? And then there's obviously, you know, like with a lot of the sort of like blockchain stuff, um, a bunch of really interesting uh, solutions in there, like Enigma or what Numerai is doing as just like alternative ways of sharing data while protecting privacy. And, uh, and, and these are the kinds way. of things we want to do in the bridge or not do in the bridge, but, you know, you have the bridge support so that as Sandy and his group work this out, we can take advantage of their research. That's, that's very interesting with the bridge and its explicit charge to kind of deliver to the real world the benefits. You have to kind of take into consideration the, the, the realities of the real world. How are you guys integrating kind of the legal issues and so on? So is that part of the process today? So... Are there lawyers involved in some of these kind of discussions? The tools that you're building, have they been kind of, do you guys put, do you guys kind of, um, I suppose, wrap it in that kind of legal oversight? Uh, Or is there, I mean, is that just not where we need to go at this stage? My my view is that certainly it's premature. So, you know, this day in December, we don't have lawyers involved. And I think, again, looking to the example of the how human experimental subject research is conducted, that also doesn't involve lawyers, it involves oversight. But the regulatory framework is set up as long as you're, uh, you know, acting responsibly inside that regulatory framework all as well. I could imagine the same thing being true for us. And we just need to figure out what that framework is. Man, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So speaking of frameworks, The other issue that strikes me about all of this work is how ubiquitous it can be to all aspects of an operation or an enterprise. And on the energy side, operational efficiency and using data to do that, that's that's a thing that's been a thing for a while. But there's also the longer term kind of planning strategy and the and the potential there to use data. There are challenges with ubiquitous data and with sparse data and so on and how you bring all of that together. Where are you guys in your thinking about kind of distilling the kind of the more fundamental work into these different functions, if you wish, you know, via the bridge? Or is that something that, that you know, you've got, you've thought a lot about at this stage? So we... I would actually say that as you get into some of those more complicated questions, the distinction between the core and the bridge probably starts to get a little blurry. So what's wrong with sparse data? Well, 
you know, it doesn't necessarily explain the entire phenomenon, but a good approach to filling in or compensating for sparsity of data is to have a good physical model. Right. And where AI is right now, there isn't actually a great working theory that connects machine learning with principled physical models. I mean, you can do it. Certainly, I don't want to you know, say that we don't know how to do it. On a case-by-case basis for individual domains, we've shown how to do it. But just as a general working theory, that feels like something that the core is really trying to uh, work out. And then we can bring that in. So those kinds of questions, I think, are you know going to be a long way out, but very much core to the enterprise of the quest overall. The other thing that you kind of almost touched on but didn't is, you know, in terms of operational efficiency, one thing we know for sure is that AI is extremely energy intensive. And so part and parcel of what, again, the core and the bridge want to do is develop more energy efficient AI algorithms that allow us to understand what's going on without having to, you know, have giant data centers that are consuming huge amounts of energy wherever it comes from. I mean, that's a real problem for AI. It's operationally a problem because it's expensive to build these data centers, the energy is expensive, and also limits the places that you can put AI. Yeah, and it feels like some of that is maybe just a function of, you know, we've seen all of this growth in the deep learning methods thanks to GPUs, but like GPUs were never really built to do a lot of right. the deep learning stuff. That's exactly right. And so how, you know, I think what we've seen some with the core and and hopefully will make its way into the bridge is sort of like as we get more and more specialized hardware that is specifically geared towards these methods, um, you'll get a lot of that energy savings rather than trying to like sort of hack them into a GPU. So we view the energy enterprise, whether it's, you know, generating energy or consuming energy, are really important to what we develop under the bridge because if we develop these tools under the bridge badly, then they're like long-term environmental implications and we really want to get out ahead of that. Well, that's kind of really interesting because, you know, there are the environmental implications. There's also then the cost implication, right? right. And the fact that the tool and its utility may not be kind of embraced. And I suppose that then leads me ultimately to kind of this question about the spectrum of applications and the kind of the spectrum of sophistication that we're ultimately going to see. So, you know, throwing the kitchen sink at a problem with respect to all of the tools that you, Josh, have in your chief architect's toolbox. I'm sure you can do, it's a big toolbox, exactly, an ever-expanding toolbox. That's going to be really exciting, but that's probably, I'm sure, in many instances, huge, huge overkill and that there's this kind of in-between space where we're losing out on where some of these techniques will be really helpful, very beneficial, but, you know, will not be embraced if if you only have that kind of big effort. So, where are we or where are you guys in terms of kind of uh, exactly that uh, distillation or kind of in, when are we going to get economy AI available so that we kind of see that roll out? That for me in the energy space, I think is particularly important because there's a lot of places where we'd like more data, we'd like more intelligence, but the value of that kind of optimization at an individual node is very small, right? And we, you know, to do that, we, we really need this kind of lower cost solutions available. Yeah, I wonder if there's some amount of this that makes it a little bit challenging to answer first, just that we, you know, like AI can mean so many different things. And there's there's so much in that bucket that, you know, there's often that sort of joke in AI research that like once we sort of understand it, implement it, like we no longer think of it as AI, you know, like routing on MapQuest right. back in the day, like that was AI search. I remember the first AI class I took from you, Nick, like we learned search. Um <laughs> We yeah. search algorithms. Nobody thinks of that as AI anymore. That's exactly right. Right. And so, you know, I wonder if it's like that sort of same little by little, these AI tools get integrated and then they no longer are AI tools because like, you know, Siri's responding to me 
Yes. So like that's not a well serious maybe still needs smoke but those sort of things <laughs> just like happen sort of like step by step I don't know yeah so Alexa might be AI Siri still working on it right there was this <laughs> Sorry, really interesting paper that like measured <laughs> uh, like measured the intelligence I'm using quotes that no one can see um, intelligence of like the different sort of did you see this Nick of like the different AI like no. uh, assistants of like I forget the results especially like Alexa versus Siri versus like uh, Google's Home and yeah. stuff anyway. But uh, yeah, so I think to Josh's point, a lot of times people ask, well, when are we going to get AI? And there isn't an AI to get. It's like physics. When are we going to get physics? Correct, I mean, yeah. there's a science or a study of AI and there's individual pieces. And so I, I think to your original point about you know economy-sized AI that's like you know in bulk and super cheap, that's a really interesting question. That's not something that we'd thought about, but we actually should. It's like, I don't, like, could you work out like a dollars per... I don't know what the unit of uh, inference would be. Graduate student time? No. <laughs> <laughs> but like, could you work out the cost of different kinds of algorithms and then decide which ones were, you know, the most provided the best value proposition for, for you know, whoever's asking the question? Right. I do not know of the state of the art in that particular a- area of economics and yep. AI. People are almost certainly looking at it. And I think that would be something we'd want to bring into the bridge. Yeah. And maybe another way. I think about that too is it's almost like you know if he has a question well like how, how do we get this sort of like impact of ai it's sort of like if we how do we get this impact of like software on energy and it's like okay well that, that means so many different things there's so many different ways that like you know programming or any sort of automation will, will sort of play out but it it's almost we have to talk about it at a much more granular level to get any like real meaningful answer i guess yeah i mean so just to give you guys a kind of uh, you know a specific example so Going back to the electricity system, you know, it has always been this kind of one-way flow, and and obviously today on the on the on the physical technology front, we've made a lot of progress with technologies like solar photovoltaics and storage, which are very modular, okay, and which allow these technologies and the service they provide to be deployed in a much more spatially disaggregated sense, which has tremendous potential in theory for altering and improving the efficiency and the environmental footprint and so on of, of, of electricity delivery. But one of the huge problems that exists in kind of embracing that fully is the electricity system is exactly that. It is a system, a kind of a singular system, ultimately, that requires very careful balancing and once you start introducing a kind of this proliferation of you know, agents into the system, it becomes very difficult to actually manage that. Yeah, that, no, that totally makes sense. So essentially, you're going from a highly centralized system right now to a much more distributed system. Right. And there's no question that's harder to manage and analyze in lots of different ways. However, the real advantage is in the sense that you're much more robust to, you know, no longer have single point failures. And AI is kind of the same thing right now, too, is that a lot of people are putting everything into the centralized cloud. Uh-huh. You don't think of the cloud as centralized and there is a distribution of redundancy, but to most people, it looks like one thing, whether it's AWS or GCP or sure. whatever. And there's a real question to be asked about how much should you put in the cloud versus how much should you put at the edge? And what are the cost benefit trade-offs there? And that's something that we've been talking to one of our partner organizations, IBM, about. They asked us the question, you know, what should be in the cloud and what should be at the edge? And I don't think we know. Well, Josh and, and Nick, this for me has just been Fascinating, absolutely fantastic. As I said at the outset, I was expecting this to be very different. I've learned a lot. 
And I think, you know, my takeaway from our conversation is that, you know, reflecting on the energy space today, and that's quite multifaceted, but just even bits of it, looking at the problems that we see and looking at the tools that you guys are developing and delivering, it's very clear that there's going to be a a long and happy relationship between energy and machine learning, artificial intelligence, and whatever it is after it's deployed into the future. Whatever it is after it's deployed. Yeah, whatever right. it's going to be called after it's deployed, <laughs> right? It's going to be fun either way. Yeah, right. it's just, you know what it's going to be? It's just going to be the future energy system, right? There you That's go. going to be what it is. Right, and we're not going to even notice it then. It's going to be like MapQuest. It's like, exactly. Okay, around us. That's right. All right, guys, thanks so much. Right. Thank you, Frank. Show notes and links to this and other episodes are available at energy.mit.edu forward slash podcast. Tweet us at MIT Energy with your questions, comments, and show ideas. And please do subscribe and review us where you get your podcasts. From MIT and from the MIT Energy Initiative, I'm Francis O'Sullivan, and thank you for listening.